will be in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. So because of some scheduling conflicts with Pastor John trying to work out the timing uh, to allow him to be out in California to meet his first grandchild, uh, this week we'll be starting in chapter 2, verse 20. I did get word that uh, Pastor John's oldest son, Quinn, and his wife, Emily, did welcome their daughter, Peyton, on Thursday night. And from what I'm hearing, both mom and baby are healthy and doing really well. So I'm sure Pastor John and Janine are having a really sweet time out there. So before we, we get into it, I do want to assure you that in the next couple weeks, Pastor John will go back and cover um, the first part of chapter two. So I promise we aren't going to skip, skip over anything. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20, if you have your Bibles. 2 Timothy is one of the three epistles that are sometimes referred to as the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are letters from Paul written to two men who were continuing the mission of spreading the gospel to the nations. These men could be called successors of Paul as they would be at the forefront of leading the church upon his death. The purpose for Paul writing these letters, as we've heard in, in recent weeks, is to encourage and ensure that future leadership of the church remain dedicated to doctrinal purity, um, as well as church organization and the guidelines prescribed by Christ. This letter, being one of the pastoral epistles, was written directly for church leaders, but indirectly also for the uh, entire church. We know that these words also apply to the entire church because they are the standards required uh, for pastors or ministers of the gospel, and they for the purpose of setting an example to the flock. So yes, pastors and elders of the church are required by God to exemplify these standards, but the standard of holy living is the same one commanded to all believers in Christ. So let's go ahead and read verses 20 through 26, and we will continue. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Through this section of his letter, Paul gives us very specific instructions on how to be a useful vessel for the master. He begins there in verse 20 by using this analogy of a great house. This great house is a parallel to the church. Then he uses the image of vessels or serving dishes, bowls, cups, plates, this is referring to the teachers or leaders of the church. He says there in verse 20, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. What Paul is trying to convey through the use of this image is that there are good teachers in the church, 
those who are biblically faithful, who meet all these requirements laid out by God to be a church leader. And there are bad teachers within the house, those who might not meet biblical pastoral qualifications, neglecting to pursue holy living and are teaching false doctrine. These are what Paul describes as vessels made of wood or clay. This analogy gives us a, a clear picture of just how detrimental this can be. If you were having guests over to your house for a really nice dinner, you probably wouldn't set the table with paper plates and plastic silverware. You'd pull out all the stops, providing them with your nicest dishes. We do this because providing your house guests when they're over for a nice dinner with paper products to eat off of would be dishonorable. You would be shortchanging them, and your lack of putting in a little effort and preparation would probably leave them feeling as if you don't care a whole lot about them or that they aren't very important to you. And maybe they wouldn't even come back. And to magnify how inconsiderate and disrespectful the wood and clay vessels are, this isn't even our house that we're talking about. This great house is God's house who established his church at a huge cost. The dishonorable vessel, the church leaders who use the word of God flippantly, whose life doesn't look much different than the atheist next door, who is affirming worldly ideologies in their churches to appease the masses. This person makes the true church look really bad, and this practice causes a lot more harm than it does good. If the men on the front lines of our fight to win the nations for Christ look just like the rest of the world, then why would the world take God seriously? Nothing about a worldly pastor or elder would encourage an unbeliever to repent of their sin and believe the gospel. This is especially true for church leadership, but it, it applies to all followers of Christ. We are commanded to grow in our relationship with God. This brings us to our first point this morning. As a response to saving grace being extended to us, we should desire to live righteously. We know through the word of God that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit who makes known to us our sin and need for a savior. This comes with a supernatural transformation of our heart where our entire nature is changed. The Holy Spirit changes our desires, making us want to obey the commands of God out of love for him. This is similar to the way a child shows that they love their parents by obeying them and trying to please them. The Spirit also convicts us, makes us aware of when, when we sin, and prompts us to repent. So while salvation is, a, is only a work of God and is completely void of our effort or ability, sanctification is not entirely the same. Luke chapter 6, verse 42 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, do not, and not do what I tell you? This is similar to the way James describes it when he says, Faith without works is dead. Works are not a means to gain salvation, but instead are a product of salvation. Obedience is evidence of the transformed heart. Becoming more like Christ is certainly not a pursuit where we are on our own. We know that the Holy Spirit is with us to guide us and direct us, 
but it also requires our effort or our want to. Dr. D.A. Carson describes it this way. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to the scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Our natural inclination is sin. It is this grace-driven effort that allows us to pursue godliness. Paul uses imperatives in all of his letters to different churches and individuals of things that they should do to help them in their pursuit of holiness. Right here in verse 21, he says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. To the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. James does the same thing when he states in chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. These commands, along with many others in Scripture, show us that there are things we can do to be an honorable vessel that is useful to the Master. The Lord uses those who desire good works and holy living. The one who is worldly is useless. We see a beautiful picture of this whole useful versus useless dynamic in Paul's letter to his friend Philemon. Paul wrote this letter as a result of crossing paths with Philemon's runaway slave Onesimus. Onesimus sinned against his master by stealing from him and running away. Yet somewhere along the line, he came face to face with Paul, came to saving faith, and was discipled by him over a period of time. Paul eventually sent Onesimus back to his master with this letter that we now know as the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Paul pleads with Philemon in this letter to receive Onesimus warmly and with grace when he returns, not just because we are called to forgive those who have wronged us, but primarily because Onesimus was now extremely useful. Paul is trying to explain to him that Onesimus was not the same man he once knew. Formerly, he was useless, but now he was very useful. Because of his, this new passion that he had for the things of God. Although no one can be saved through the following of the law, we are to love the law and we should pursue righteousness. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will. My God, your law is within my heart. The one who treasures the commands of God and delights in obedience is pleasing and useful to God. Paul goes on in the next couple verses to give some practical ways on how to be useful. 
verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And we'll stop there for just a moment. As Paul lists out in plain terms like this specific do's and don'ts, the temptation is to focus on the things we do well and to disregard the things that we don't. We also love to deflect when we hear these things and think things like, I know someone who really does need to work in this area. But the hope is that we can be humbled when we see a list of commands like this. If we are all honest, when we read passages of scripture that deal with law like this one, we should be met with the harsh reality of how short we fall of the standard. This attitude forces us to rely on grace as opposed to foolishly thinking we are good enough. Having this mindset also encourages us to be better at these things. This is the purpose of God giving us the law. Firstly, to realize that we are incapable of perfectly following it. And secondly, to encourage us to be more like Christ and to show us how to do so. Our second point this morning is this. The honorable vessel strives to keep the law after realizing it can't be done perfectly for the purpose of being useful to God. It's a strange reality that resting in the fact that we will never measure up to the law actually motivates us to love the law. I love the way that Pastor John described it last week when he said, and I'm paraphrasing, the law never gives us the power to fulfill it. It is through the gospel parts of scripture, the areas talking about the things that Christ has done for us, that gives us the transformed heart that desires to obey the law. Let's look back really quick at the ways Paul says we should pursue holiness in these verses. Verse 22 again, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Pursue righteousness, there he gives another imperative, something we are to strive toward along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. To, con to continue using his own analogy here, gold and, sil and silver vessels should be working at this alongside other gold and silver vessels. This highlights the importance of the gathering of the saints, being part of a small group, home group, serving in the church, just having people in your corner to do life with. This is what the proverb describes when it mentions how iron sharpens iron. I've experienced the benefits of this through my internship by our pastors helping me and preparing me for ministry. Pursuing sanctification along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart also requires us to use discernment for those who are not of a pure heart. In this time where media and information is transferable to the entire world instantaneously, we have to be more on guard than ever. Every person who has access to social media also has opinions. Many, if not most of those people, love to put their religious beliefs, political ideologies, stances on social issues all over social media. 
Because of this, we now take in so much more information than any other generation before. And just like with anything else that sinners are a part of, there are a lot of errors and false information out there. Christ followers need to be constantly reminded that there are not multiple sources of truth. We don't get to decide what is true and what's false. Christians know that there is such thing as objective truth, and that is the word of God. We have to make sure that the information, especially the biblical teaching that we are subscribing to, actually aligns with scripture. This is another area where sanctification becomes crucial because it heightens our ability to discern what is true. Staying away from false teaching is so important because it is poison even to the believer if they are not careful. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Paul again in Galatians speaking to this very issue in chapter 5 verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We have to give this area a lot of care and attention so that we not be persuaded by false, corrupting teaching. If you aren't aware or somehow haven't seen the product of this happening in our world today, let me share with you some results of a study that was performed in 2020 by Ligonier Ministries, the organization founded by the late R.C. Sproul. In a study called The State of Theology, they polled both evangelicals and non-evangelicals. They read them a statement and then asked if they agreed with it or not. One statement they read was, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, to which 30% of people who identified as evangelicals agreed with that statement. The next statement given was, Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 46% of proclaiming evangelicals agreed with that statement. 46% of evangelicals believe that they're good people. Another statement, gender identity is a matter of choice. 22% of proclaiming evangelicals agreed. One last statement given was, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 42% of proclaiming evangelicals agreed with that statement. I only listed the results that they took from proclaiming evangelicals. The saddest part of the whole survey to me was comparing the results of evangelicals to non-evangelicals and realizing that there wasn't that big of a difference. The results actually look somewhat similar. We have to be in growing relationships with Christ and in fellowship with other believers so that we not be corrupted by false teaching. Looking back at Paul's list of commands in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The one who is useful should not be participating in meaningless arguing. The rise of social media has also caused much of the rise of foolish, ignorant controversy. 
the rise of COVID-19 combined with social media has caused a ridiculous amount of foolish, ignorant controversy. Even within the church, we often see people engaged in public arguing, mostly over political and social issues. God tells us to have nothing to do with this. And besides, nobody is going to change their political views or stance on vaccines and masks because of us besting them in an argument on Facebook. Instead, Paul gives us the right way to approach issues that we might disagree with or even information that we know to be false. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. I think this behavior has escaped all of us at some point or another during the pandemic or in this controversial political climate. Do we care as much about our neighbor's eternal destination as we do about who they voted for? Which is a bigger deal to us, the percentage of proclaiming evangelicals who believe that Jesus was a good teacher but not God, or the percentage of people who get vaccinated? Paul tells us, tells us to have nothing to do with these silly controversies and not be quarrelsome because not only are we neglecting to show kindness and humility, but also because we're arguing about the wrong things altogether. The first part of verse 25 again, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is where it gets tricky and full transparency. I spent a lot of time wrestling with this part during my prep because just a couple verses earlier we were told to have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies and now here we are told to correct our opponents so what changes or an easier way to put it is which things are we supposed to let go and which things are we supposed to correct with gentleness I think the answer is actually simple and it, are, and it deals with something covered earlier is that Christ followers have an objective truth. No matter what the world says is true, what God says is the final word, the only source of truth. That said, we are to correct with gentleness when information being spread is against what God says in his word. The word of God is the only area where we are not to compromise in any way. We can be clear cut on an issue only if God is clear on the issue. And conversely, it is dangerous to take a hard stance on something that God speaks nothing about. It also says to use gentleness when correcting. A humble, gentle approach when correcting is something that is definitely tough to master. Using gentleness when correcting is essential because Correction without gentleness is graceless and does not reflect Christ. Because when we correct, yes, we want to fix their error, but even more than that, we naturally also want them to know how right we are and how wrong they were. We try to correct while also showing that we won. This is the opposite of the very character of Jesus. The one who is gentle and lowly is the most effective evangelist because they mirror Christ better and show his kindness rather than the one who comes from a place of perceived intellectual superiority. 
you'll also find that gentleness often diffuses an opponent. If someone approaches you ready to throw down an argument, gentleness often takes the bullets right out of the gun for them. I know that I've been in situations where I was proven to be, proven to be right about something, and instead of taking the gentle approach described here, I've been the one who kicks the door down and approaches someone ready to make sure they knew how right I was and how wrong they were, only to be met with a meek, gentle response. Earlier, I stopped halfway through verse 25. The rest of it gives us the reason for correcting with gentleness. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the reason for for correcting, and it's actually the ultimate purpose for sanctification as a whole, that we be able to give the world a picture of Christ through our actions. That our kindness to others points them to the greatest act of kindness of all, the act of God taking our sinfulness and imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15, Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This brings us to our final point this morning. Our hope in striving to reflect Christ in our conduct is that unbelievers get a glimpse of his kindness. And who knows, God might even, through his kindness, bring someone to saving faith after they encounter that reflection. This approach to obeying God's law does not leave any room for pride or selfishness. Obeying God out of love for him and genuine care for the unsaved is a goal worth pursuing. It is one that requires emptying yourself and submitting to the leadership of Christ in your life. Like I mentioned earlier, this passage was directly written for church leadership and serves as part of the requirements for those set apart for ministry. And we are incredibly fortunate at Capshaw to have elders who exemplify and bear these characteristics required of church leadership very well. But these are requirements for them to be an example to the rest of us. We are all called to have these traits. So as the worship team comes back up, if you're here this morning and you feel like you are not in a place where you could be used by God because of your desire to live for yourself instead of humbly submitting to God, there is good news for you. The good news about the dishonorable wood or clay vessel is that they can be purged of their imperfection and made into a completely new creation. Maybe you are one who is striving to follow the law, but it's out of a desire to gain some sort of favor with God. Or maybe you think you're a good person because of your track record of doing more good than bad things. To those people this morning, if you haven't arrived there yet, you're coming up on a place of emptiness and disappointment. True joy and true rest is found only in the acknowledgement that you are not good enough but that Christ was good for you through believing and trusting in him alone for your salvation.
Let's pray. God, we approach you empty-handed this morning, knowing that we have nothing to offer you. We thank you for providing a way of salvation for us despite our rebellion against you. Help us rest in the grace that you have shown to us, deepen our love for you, and as a result, cause us to love and cherish your law more. Give us the ability to discern truth and protect us from the wolves in sheep's clothing who are distributing false teaching. Thank you for blessing us here at Capshaw with uncompromising leadership when it comes to your word. Let our conduct be glorifying to you and use it to transform the hearts of others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.